Welcome everyone to the Food, Farms, and Chefs radio show with restaurant industry author Kevin Wilson, highly acclaimed chef Gene Blum, and food photojournalist Amaris Pollock. Join them as they interview the biggest names in the restaurant industry, tell you about the latest food trends, and give you recipes and cooking tips too. So let's get the show started. Welcome, everyone, to the premiere of our new name, Food, Farms, and Chefs. I want to welcome our listeners on Talk Radio, WWDB in in the Delaware Valley. Our listeners around the world via the podcast. Today's show has Aaron Manuyug. He is one of the best bakers in America on the Food Network. He is on that fabulous show. We all love that show. Jim Kahn, who is the owner and editor and publisher, Mid-Atlantic Events Magazine, will join us after Aaron. And then we close out this fantastic show with Vicki Waz, who has 40 years experience in the egg industry, beginning with the American Egg Board. And she recently retired from Michael Foods after 34 years of food service sales of egg products. Let's get this show, this fantastic show started. Amaris Pollock, I love the Food Network, and I especially love Best Bakers in America. Let's introduce our fantastic guest. Hi, I want to introduce Aaron Manuag, who is one of the competitors on season four of Best Bakers in America. Um, Aaron, welcome to the show. I am so excited to introduce you to our listeners. So why don't you tell a little bit about yourself, um, how you, where you learned how to bake, and you know how you're tied into Philly, and where you're at right now. Uh, yeah, thank you for having me. Um... So I uh, actually grew up in a bakery. My mom had a cake shop when I was growing up. So I've kind of been around it my entire life, but it was never really something that I thought about doing for a living uh, until I was in college. And um, I happened to fall into the French style pastries and went to the French pastry school in Chicago, which is pretty phenomenal. And um, I spent most of my career cooking in Chicago, and then um, I actually, um, my job took me out to Philadelphia, and I worked um, and was the pastry chef for High Street Hospitality Group and all of their restaurants and wholesale bakery that um, is under that umbrella. And um, I was there for a couple of years and had an opportunity to come out to uh, Tucson, Arizona. So that's where I am now. And I'm the executive pastry chef at Lowe's Ventana Canyon Resort here. And that is an amazing, you know, history. And I'm sure that you've learned under some amazing chefs, pastry chefs like Sebastian Cannon, um, you know, and I also know that you got, you know, major mark, you were nominated by in Philly as one of the rising stars in Philly. So that's awesome. Now, how did you get um, started for the best bakers in America? Like, what, you know, inspired you to to reach out and try to uh, be one of the contestants on it? So um, this is actually, so for a lot of these shows, especially for the baking ones where they're looking for pastry chefs, um, a lot of the casting producers will 
um, search social media and try to find chefs that way. And so I've been contacted a few different times for it um, through social media channels. Um, but I, you know, it never worked out with the schedules and um, you're always busy. So it's always in the back of your mind and you don't ever fully commit. But because of COVID, of course, there was plenty of time. <laughs> and um, this time there was actually a, a connection from Philly. Um, Abby Dawn, the executive pastry chef at Park Restaurant, um, she and I are good friends, and uh, they had contacted her about the show, but she had just won on Chopped, so she wasn't able to do, uh, she wasn't able to participate. Um, so she recommended me, and they contacted me, and that's uh, how it started. And that's amazing. Networking is definitely one of the biggest ways that you can, you know, launch your career, and this is most assuredly going to launch your career, because now you're on America's TV, um, everybody's watching food you. Food Network. Yeah, the Food Network. I mean. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and Aaron, today you're on Drive Time Radio, WWDB in the Delaware Valley. <laughs> right. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and uh, and we, we are also on W on uh, secondary radio we're up station, in, We're too. also up in New York, WMLD Radio, 103.7 FM. Exactly. In, uh, Upstate New York and Southern Connecticut. So your your uh, wow. your stardom is even rising, rising further. <laughs> now, um, uh, I I've watched a couple the two episodes that are that are on for the fourth season, and um, I you you were definitely under a little bit of heat for that first episode. Um, did that? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. Like you know, I'm not throwing throwing shade or anything. But no, no. Um, did that inspire you to work just that extra level of um, intention intention on the during the second episode? You know, I'd say that first episode really threw all of us and uh, myself especially. I was you know adjusting to the foreign environment and. Um, having all new equipment, all new tools, it, you just spend a lot of your time looking for things and running back and forth. It's kind of something you don't think about um, in your, a regular kitchen, right? You already know where everything is. Yeah. Um, so that first day just really threw me. And, you know, we, we, if you saw it, you know, we made a full pie and then a full cake and we had to bake it inside of it and then build it. And so I just, yeah, I, I was a lost track of time. That's that's uh, the other factor. Is you don't have a big clock to um, to pace yourself at. You kind of have to wait until time is called <laughs> every once in a while <laughs> to yeah. kind of gauge where you are. So it, you know it's a different set of challenges. And um, so for the second episode, I was definitely a lot more on my game. I had a better feeling for the environment and having cameras in your face and being asked questions. Yes, and I love the fact that you, you know, incorporated your Filipino re roots into your what you created. So why don't you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so um, so for this entire season, um, all the bakers are actually doing their best to represent their region. And for me, um, that is Tucson, the southwest, uh, where I am now. Um, but I also, you know, I have, I have an incredibly rich background in um, – I am three quarters Filipino and a quarter, my mom is from the South. So I grew up with these really great um, food roots, if you will. And um, so I wanted to bring some of that 
um, in the first episode. So with the pie cake, and that's why I brought the pecan pie, because that has a lot of history with my mom and her southern roots. Um, but for the Bake Off, um, I wanted to bring Filipino heritage and um, give a nod to that, because I think it's really important, A, to uh, represent the community, but also to uh, introduce uh, a new audience to a, an ingredient that they probably are not familiar with. And calamansi is a, an everyday ingredient in the Filipino cuisine. It's, it's not a rare ingredient by any means. It's just not as well known. Yeah. I mean, for me, I actually don't know that ingredient. So you were definitely introducing that ingredient, you know, to me. And I want to try it out because it sounds like a delicious, you know, fruity. Um... You should. Absolutely. <laughs> They're in the Asian markets and... Uh, I mean, they have it as juice. You can get it as a sweetened juice. I huh. was actually, um, something they didn't air on the show, but it's actually used in Florida quite a lot. They make, um, but they call it calamondin, and they make a calamondin cake. Um, and it's the same fruit. They use it when it's a little more ripe, whereas Filipinos use it when it's more unripe. Yeah. And I mean, it sounded like it would be perfect for the key lime um, that, that you mm -hmm. guys had created. So uh, a lot of props to you for, you know, incorporating that. Um, and then, I mean, talk about that chipotle, chipotle popcorn, choc flourless chocolate cake. <laughs> like, oh, my God. I was sitting there watching it going, can I have a slice? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, that, that cake, um, oh, gosh, I did. I had a bite of it, and it was, I, without any ego, I can say it was really good. <laughs> um, and the, the uh, popcorn, so I... I um they I, I wish they didn't breeze over it with editing, but I it took a couple of times for me to get the popcorn right because I couldn't get it to coat. Mm. I used uh, piloncillo sugar, um, so I used you know really nice unrefined sugar to coat it, um, and it wasn't doing its job. And so I found chipotle powder in the pantry, and oh my gosh, it's it's like my new favorite thing. I want to eat it all. The time. Oh my so it's like a spicy sweet that uh, that you came up with. Yeah, it's a little bit spicy, but it's got this earthiness to it. And because the, the piloncillo sugar is so sweet, it um, it really balances out yeah. so, so perfectly. Now, what is it like um, having such big names overseeing and being your, um, your you know, guides for an all intensive purposes? But, you, you know, the, the experts that are on Carla Hall and Jason Smith, and I'm going to – I'm – Probably gonna mess up her name because, but Jacine um, Gazina Bullock Prado. There yeah, you go. there you go. Yeah, so you go. she has such a wonderful name, and I'm just like, I don't want to botch that. <laughs> but um, what is it like, you know, having them, you know, guide you throughout the the show? You know, it was really, um, it was really uh, scary at first because I, you know, you have these preconceived notions of how they're gonna be, how they're gonna judge you, and um, it can feel personal sometimes, obviously, because you're just, it's about you and exactly what you've just put out, but they're really there to help you. I mean, I, the first day I saw Carla, I didn't know she was going to be the host and, um, I had a ma major fanboy moment and, stopped <laughs> and um, <laughs> geeked out because I've been a fan of her since Top Chef. Don't worry. I would too. Um, and, <laughs> and then Jason, um, you know, I've seen him on Food Network, and he's a lot of fun in Southern, so it was great to meet him. And then with Gazina, actually, I've had her um, – she has a confectionery book that I, I've had for years, and um, I didn't expect to see her. And 
I thought she was going to be scary and very difficult and the biggest critique, but, you know, I, she was so supportive and she's so wonderful. And she, if we, even if we screwed up, she still understood what we were trying to do. And it, it was incredible to have her as a support. Yeah. And, and I mean, all of the, all of your expert, the experts on the panel, like the personalities, you know, are, ranging from somebody who's serious to somebody who's fun and then you know jason who's like he's just out there like i i can't wait until i hear him speak like the next thing that comes out of his mouth is so amusing Uh, (laughs) uh, you you know it's so funny because before the show i i thought oh my gosh does he only speak in metaphor (laughs) it's um it's when you meet him in person it's all because everything's so condensed in time, it just seems that way. <laughs> no, he was really great. I liked him a lot. <laughs> now, um, was there any particular dessert that you saw one of your fellow competitors make that you were just like, I want to dig in? Um, you know, everything. I These bakers on the show, I, as you've seen with the first couple of episodes, they're all really talented. Um, and... Not that I thought anyone wasn't going to be, but I think my jaw just dropped. Uh, and you, you don't look up when you're cooking during this competition. Your head is down for hours. And then you look up and suddenly everyone's got these immaculate desserts. Um, so uh, I, I think everyone's. I mean, you, I, I know the person that was closest to me for the first two episodes was Caitlin, um, who won the first challenge. And so we were just um, station buddies, and her work is the one I got to see the most up close. Yeah. And uh, I got to actually taste um, a little bit of her honey fudge from her Smith Island cake. Mm-hmm. And um, it's the most addictive candy you could ever eat. I know. I was, so we well, were just sneaking bites of that. <laughs> I was watching that going, I want to make that at home. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's in, it's really incredible. I don't know if she put that on Instagram. She's been putting recipes up, but it's a good one. <laughs> yeah, it looked it looked absolutely delicious. Um, now, before we have to let you go, I know that you need to get you know get back to the show and cooking, <laughs> um, baking, and well, yeah, baking <laughs> in particular. Um, <laughs> what would be some like who who was y- your biggest inspiration? On the show, mm-hmm. or you mean in, in for baking? For baking, and, and then you know what on the show as well. <laughs> um, on the show, your, your mother's a good answer. Really hard to I know, <laughs> <laughs> especially if she's listening. Uh, I, I, I was going to say everyone on the show it was really inspired me in different ways because they all have something that they're each good at. Um, so that was great to be around that group. Um, but other than that, you know, I've I have such an interest in all aspects of pastry. So um, my one of the first people I was ever inspired by um, cooking was Della Gossett, who um, mm. was Charlie Trotter's pastry chef for years, and now she's at um, uh, Spago in L.A. And she's the first person that taught me um, ice cream and sugar candy and um, plated desserts, and she just blew me away, and she still does. I think she's a phenomenal pastry chef. Um, and there's so many. I could sit here all day and list. Probably. <laughs> Probably. Now, um, for for our listeners out there, for you to inspire them, where can they find you on social media? And when can they tune in to watch the show? 
Oh, please follow me on Instagram. I've only got like 10 followers. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> um, on Instagram, uh, my handle is Atman, like Batman with no B, Atman3. Oh, wow. And um, you can watch tonight and every Monday at 9 p.m. Eastern on Food Network and on the Food Network Go app. That's awesome. Yep. Thank you. And thank I you love for Best us. Bakers in America. I love the show. I Aaron, know. It makes thank me, you. It, it makes me <laughs> want to be creative and at home. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. All right. So, Aaron, thank you for joining us. And um, if you are out there listening, you can tune in for Best Bakers in America on the Food Network at 9 p.m. Eastern Time and Pacific Time. Thank you so much, Aaron. Chef Gene, let's introduce this fantastic guest. Well, this time it's a great honor to introduce a gentleman, a mentor, a leader in the hospitality industry, uh, Jim Kahn, publisher of Mid-Atlantic Events Magazine, which has been a staple of the industry in the Mid-Atlantic region of America for the past 34 years. Welcome, Jim. Great. Well, thanks, Gene. Great catching up with you. Looking forward to uh, to our conversation. So, you know, 34 years, publisher of a magazine. Before that, you were in the radio industry a little bit. Tell us a little bit about how it came about, how you got started, and uh, mm-hmm. got to where you're at today. Yeah, well, well, you know, it, it's funny, but I grew up, uh, I guess I was destined for this industry. Uh, um, my folks um, were involved with producing record surveys for radio stations throughout the Mid-Atlantic region, uh, all the major radio stations back in the 1960s and 70s um, created record surveys and distributed them at uh, department stores, record stores. So um, I grew up uh, ha- having parties at my house because a lot of the jocks would come over to the house and we'd have uh, parties galore. and. Um, so that, that sort of was my taste into the, into the fun world and the radio world. Um, but then what I, I did is I, um, I played ice hockey and I got a lot of uh, parties for my ice hockey team and started to really enjoy throwing events. And fast forward to the mid-80s, I started to go to a club over in New Jersey and I happened to bump into some of the Stanley Cup flyers at this club. And uh, I guess they liked me because they started to ask me back each week. And every Wednesday, I would leave work and head over to uh, this club. And we just started to become friends. And I uh, was asked by them to start asking to bring them out to different events that I was going to, different networking events. So I would show up with Dave Schultz or Bob Kelly, Ricky McLeish, Joey Watson, uh, Ron Jaworski was going to this club, Vince Papali. Um, so I became friends with them and uh, decided to uh, do something after an event. I took a photograph of them and I decided to create a publication back in 1987 through some big parties back then. And um, the rest started our, our, our game plan rolling with our uh, event and hospitality industry. Well, when you say you threw great parties, I mean, you were really instrumental in some of the industry's leading networking events, you know, with the founding of Fresh, which went on for many years and was a great event. And, you know, I know a lot of people would like to revisit that, but, you know, your success and 
what you've been a part of and, and bring together chambers and everything like that. Mm-hmm. What in your 34 yeah. years have you seen that's, you know, changed from, you know, when you first got in there to where we are today, short of COVID, obviously, that, you know, we were all experiencing? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, it was interesting because going back to one of our biggest events, uh, we had an event we created called the Ham Ball, which was Honey Baked Ham and myself. They brought the ham and I brought the ball. And we took over the Spirit of Philadelphia for the grand opening. We had about 50 sponsors, celebrities galore, black tie. Um, it was all complimentary. Uh, we had 600 people show up, and then the, the vessel pulled back into dock, and another 400 came on board. And what we've noticed back then, comparably to now, is it was it, we didn't even talk about budgets back then. We didn't even talk about um, – uh, well, back then it was black tie, you know, no matter what. Now, you know, you, you have relaxed um, attire at certain events. Uh, so it was more about just having a big event and party. You know, events like Fresh, which we were a part of uh, with the ILEA group, which used to be called ISIS, International Special Events Society, created a way to show off how events should be done, should be done correctly. And then we were involved in, as you were too, Gene, with, with one of the biggest events in the region called Taste and Tour of the Countryside, uh, sponsored by the, the Delaware County Conference of Visitors Bureau and held at Drexelbrook. And most of our events that we were involved with ran for 16, 17, I mean, that ran for 18 years. Um, what we're seeing now is that sometimes the events have to have a little bit more um definition to the event of what the goals would be but the uh, events back then you know we just wanted to have a great time now there was a lot more events again up to pre-covid i was attending close to about 250 events a year up before covid um, and we were also involved with a lot of those events uh they're starting to come back but it's in a whole different fashion now too Yes, it really is. And I remember us having a conversation where you were throwing the idea out there of name tags that had little symbols on it, whether it was, you know, you're good for a handshake, you're good for a fist bump, you're good for, you know, six foot distance, or you're good for a hug. And you and I were both, we're in it for the hugs, you know, like, oh, it's, yeah. it's been too long and, you know, we, we need to see our people again. Yep. You've been yeah. a leader to so many in this industry. You've been, you know, anybody does a, a large event and they get, you know, let's get Jim involved and things like that. And I I, I want to say that I, I believe you've been instrumental in pulling so many chambers and expanding regions out. So tell us a little bit about what things you do with, you know, Pocono Convention of Visitors and, you know, other states where you're bringing them into Philadelphia and some of those projects that you do. So we have created um, dinner events so that the Pocono Mountain CVB or uh, just most recently Discover Lancaster about three weeks ago uh, would come to the region here, the, the five-county region of Philadelphia, looking to attract meeting planners to take a look at their destination because it's hard to get them to come to their destination sometimes. So we create these um, roadshow events for many of the 
CVB's convention or conference and visitors bureaus to come into our area and then to really just show off to the to the attendees what's going on in their areas. Uh, it's an easy way for a good uh, scenario for them to to really mix and mingle. Uh, they get prime time with the planners. And what we act as is we, we act as a buffer or, or an extra salesperson for that for those groups. Um, I enjoy that because it's not about me, it's about them. Um, we've also created think tank events called Think Tank Talk, and, and sometimes the different destinations will contract us to do those, and that's a smaller, that's like a 10-person event. Uh, just most recently, we're doing events called Dinner at 6 or 8, which is a series at um, Stake 48. So it's for eight attend. It's for uh, for eight attendees at six o'clock for dinner, and it's a way just to get the people there. But we again act as a extra salesperson or just a liaison because we're not there to sell anything. We're just there to to be the connector, and uh, I love doing that. They're, they're, the small events are great, and now we got a big one coming up in June too. Yes, can you tell us a little bit about that event? Yeah, yeah. It, you know, it, during this whole COVID uh, situation, you know, people were still feeling, you know, and the capacities were not there to go indoors. So PCMA, the Professional Convention Management Association of Philadelphia, a very strong organization, approached me and said, you know, we're, we're kicking around doing an event, maybe thinking about outdoors. So the committee and myself got together and we created a uh, PCMA PHL tailgate trade show. And it's being held on June 3rd at Drexel Brook in Drexel Hill. Um, right now we have close to 60 destinations, exhibitors, um, service companies, event service companies, uh, com food companies coming to the event and we have close to 100 planners who are going to be able to walk from car to car think of a you know think of a flea market you know as they walk looking at the goods and and everything so we're, we're super excited about this event because uh at least with the outdoors you know you feel some people feel more comfortable absolutely and a fabulous venue i know they have plenty of space there so there'll be Lots of distance for people and lots of, you know, opportunities to socially distance for those who wish to do that. And for those who wish to get together for a cocktail afterwards, we can all go to the patio, I'm sure. <clears throat> oh, so. well, actually, we're having a post event there, yes. Ahem, <clears throat> <laughs> <laughs> I, I, Oh, I'm sorry. I'm just needing to clear my throat when I heard that. <laughs> uh-huh. And someone else will be there, too, that's for sure. So. <laughs> Um, I'm actually excited about that because it's going to be one of the first hospitality events that I've ever, you know, attended. Um, so it'll be interesting because I know it's probably a pivot from what you normally would do. Uh, but I am excited to learn to, to meet and greet everybody. Uh, now what else is up next for you? Um, you know, it's funny because in 2019, um, July, we ended with our largest um, event called the Hospitality Summer Outing, and we had taken over the Barnes Foundation. We had about 450 people show up, somewhere around 
30 sponsors, partners. Um, it, it was phenomenal. Um, only downside was it was, of course, about 102 degrees, and we sort of had to pull things more indoors. And a lot of people have been asking me, is this something that could happen again? Can we can we start to get to the bigger events? And, and you know, I think it's going to happen um you know, with all the restrictions being changed and the the uh, capacities moving in the right direction, you know, I think people are looking to uh, to get out. So we're we're going to start kicking around that. With you know, in December, we also were one of the creators of an event called Jingle Jam, and Jingle Jam was a big industry event um, that ran for about eight years. So. You know, we, I hope we start getting back on track to start looking at that for the holiday season. Um, the the in-person events are, are so much for this industry. I mean, our industry needs people. Um, it, they they grow on it. They uh, thrive on it. And, and we all enjoy each other because we all become friends and we all help each other. Exactly. But the small stuff, and the small stuff though, is is really coming back strong right now. We're we're getting calls constantly for the small board retreats, the strategic meetings. Um, we have a thing on our website called Ask Jim, and it's uh, just it's something cute we put up there. But we were averaging about three a day before the pandemic hit, and now we're probably maybe one a, one a day at this point but at least it's coming back. Yeah. And your reach is larger than just this, you know, tri-state area. You you run from if um of like New York, I think, to Virginia. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what well, what well, was funny, our first name, we for, when we first started our publication, we called it Events Magazine, but we realized that was too generic. So then I called it Tri-State Events Magazine, and I was getting a lot of people calling me go, "Oh, are you New York, Connecticut, and New Jersey?" or are you uh, Delaware, Maryland, and Virginia? I was like, well, no, we were Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and Delaware to start with. And I decided to call it Mid-Atlantic just to, to position ourselves a little bit, but we were touching into the fringes of the Northeast. So we're getting calls from Connecticut and Virginia, all the way down to Virginia, out to Ohio. So I always say you drop a pebble, at Philadelphia, and our core group is about 150 mile radius of Philadelphia is our real strength. Um, so that's that's how I look, really look at who we who we reach and who we get to advertise in the publication too. Mm. But your voice is heard so much further. I know on June 3rd, if I'm correct, we have like Visit Hawaii going to be there also. So you're you're drawing roots from other parts of the country. You, you know, when we would go down to Washington for the event every year, you would be there representing, you know, Brandywine, but you would be representing, you know, to people throughout the country. So your, your voice is so much larger than that. Well, you know, we, yeah, we, we try to give as much editorial that we can into our publication. We are we reach out to different destinations. And the big reason is that is because we've had a lot of great relationships with people in this region here, but then they might have moved on to different locations. A friend of mine moved down to Charlotte, North Carolina, and, you know, so he called right away and said, hey, can, can we work together? Uh, we've had people from Orlando, and, and, and people move around in this industry, and 
you know, I always learn to treat, you know, the bellman just as much as the general manager because you never know when that bellman's going to be the general manager. So it's 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 always the way to just be visible, be seen. Uh, I always say insight in mind. You know, you're always out there, and that's what we're trying to do. We always try to be visible and helpful. That that's been always our goal. Even our family printing business, we had that was my dad's goal all the time. You know, we had clients, and we still we have clients now, still for 25 years, 30 years uh, with my publication. That's I mean, a- you've you've mentored so many of us in that whole networking and relationship building thing. So we we thank you very much for that. In, in those lessons you have given to us um, in that. In addition to what you did with the magazine, you've been on the forefront as a leader here with the political fight in the state of Pennsylvania to get reopened and all. Tell us a little bit about some of the things that you, you've been doing to get the industry back open and the fights you've been working with with Dominic and Phyllis and people like that. You know, there's been so many voices out there and what I, I ended up doing was trying to go into a different angle because I went into my the press offices and just asking us sort of like with the Jerry Maguire movie, show me the money. I said, well, show me the data. And there was no data to be shown. And I decided to just keep that on the forefront of trying to bring it to some of the groups like the PEP group that Dom and Tim and Joe Volpe and Jeff Miller, of course, Phyllis are, are all involved with, which, has been a very strong voice and working with the PRLA uh, with Ben and Melissa, just, you know, hearing their guidance because they're really taking the fight to the, to the main people. And, uh, you know, it's really just been trying to keep the word out there. Um, It's interesting. I'm getting, uh, I I found I'm getting honored on Wednesday, this Wednesday through MPI with a special award for all my involvement with the industry you know, to keep it together uh, because everything we're trying to do is to keep the industry visible, seen. Uh, I mean, we've reached out to to various people within the government trying to actually educate a lot of the legislators or state senators or state reps about the industry because, you know, they have a lot on their plate for other things. But this industry is probably the largest trickle-down industry in the world. And I think that's what I was trying to do is just present it that, you know, this is, this affects a lot more people than any other industry. So uh, yeah, it's, it's been, it's been a battle. And last week uh, with, with a few different announcements being made, you know, it was almost like, you know, finally, you know, we're getting somewhere. Now, does that mean that you're going to start planning for more events um, moving forward or are you going to move forward with that a little bit more um, apprehensively? No, I, I think what we're looking at um, to, to look more at events, to see what events could be planned, more conferences, more trade shows. You know, when the when all of a sudden everything's lifted, it doesn't mean that the convention industry is going to be back tomorrow. Um, the weddings industry will be a lot quicker to come back. But it's really just trying to get people to be uh, aware that, going into a lot of these venues who have really taken the protocol of of the CDC guidelines is to get them to get people to get back indoors to do events or, or, you know, outdoor, indoor, but just to start doing more. Uh, You know, I think right now just the mask mandate is going to be interesting to see um, how that 
changes, but people want to get out. People want to meet. They want to, you know, people can't wait to get into, into conferences and meetings. You know, before it was like, oh, I got to go to another meeting maybe. Now they, they want to see people. You know, we, we opened our doors up right as the pandemic started just to say, if you need to come in here, you know, we, we got we got enough rooms here because my office went virtual. Come in and, and, you know, spend some time in here. If you have to use some of our computers or bring your laptop or you need to just talk, come on in. We'll, you know, let's let's figure out a game plan. So at 200 events a year that you attend, and I think that's actually a low number knowing you. Well, uh, probably it is. <laughs> publishing the magazine, you know, making the squids to virtual, you know, being a father, all that. You also find the time to be an advisor to just about every network group there is in our industry. And then you have one special group that you uh, are on the board of directors with, and that would be the Elmwood Park Zoo. How did that come about? Tell us a little bit about your relationship with Elmwood Park Zoo. So um, I was uh, talking to one of the board members, a good friend of mine, and he kept uh, he, he kept coming to my events as well. And, and we've been friends for years and wanted me to get to meet the uh, director, Al Zone. And he said, you know, I think you'll you'll hit it off. And, you know, we like to have some sort of visionary. And, and Gene, I don't know if you remember Zubilee at uh, Philadelphia mm-hmm. Zoo. Uh, we have been involved with that for a, a few years, and I said, geez, you know, this this might be pretty cool to bring something like that to Elmwood Park Zoo. And, you know, when I sat down with, with, with the bo- a couple board members, and they said, look, you know, you're, you're in that industry, you have connections, what do you think we should do? So I sort of had a little bit of a visionary role of trying to bring some unique events or different events to the zoo you know, because they do a great job for a lot of the things that they do right now. But, you know, you got an event like Dinner on Blanc, that's that's a well-attended event in the, in the, in the everywhere around the country. Well, why can't you do something, a, you know, a dinner on leopard or something, whatever it may be. Right, right. Um, you know, create something different because people like different and the zoo is, is really a main main place in Montgomery County, and it has growth potential on the footprint of the zoo space as well as uh, it's got a strong board and a very interact a very active board too. And I'm I'm looking online and they, they, I'm seeing some of the events that you have breakfast with the giraffes, you have an adventure a night adventures. It looks like um, you're doing zip lining and treetops. Those are pretty amazing and, you know, mar- remarkable events because that's something that I don't think any zoo does. Yeah, they were the first uh, autism uh, uh, certified zoo in the world, I believe. I think that just happened just before I got on the, on the board. But the, um, the, the zoo, uh, they have such a strong pull in the community and it's a great destination. And, you know, it's not just for kids. It's, it's for the adults in the evening. I mean, we have a zoo safari event uh, that goes on and a Beast of a Feast, which was a food event there. And, again, everything was great, you know, for, before the pandemic. But they were able to really, I, don't, I hate the word pivot anymore, but they were really twist and tweaked and, and did a great job during the pandemic. So uh, we, were, we were excited to see what the future holds. And, 
um, sort of like the, the my first place that I went for an event was the 1964 World's Fair. Um, it, it was probably one of the best memories as a kid, and, and I was a young young kid then. And uh, I went into the Carousel of Progress. It was called Progress Land. And it was a song that kept going through my mind ever since. And then it fast forward to Disney World, and it's called, it's at the Carousel of Progress, and there's a great big beautiful tomorrow. And I listened to the song, and that's what I kept thinking, that, you know, it's got to be a great future. And uh, and we positioned that as, you know, let's just keep moving, you know, progress or moving, you know, progress through the uh, through the events industry and get things back on track or do even better now. So that would be sort of your aim for these uh, hospitality gathering uh, events, that it's almost like a, a progress like that was. Yeah, yeah, just to, to see that what's new, because, you know, some of the same things might not be the same, you know, pre-pandemic and post, um, you know, there were certain type of events that maybe were going on all this, the, the same time, same way. So it's just now what's going to be different? What, you know, what's going to grab the people to come out? You know, unfortunately, a lot of people had left the industry, but now we're trying to get a lot of people back in, especially, especially staff. I mean, that's the biggest thing, but just trying to do some new things into the industry, I think it's going to be a lot of fun. And uh, I know I'm excited. I, I've not, I've, this last four months have probably been the busiest months that we've had in, in five or six years. That's because I think everybody's so excited about things opening up. <laughs> it's, it's like all the it's like all the horses running up to the starting gate. It's like you know you can't wait to get rolling, and I, I think because we're, you know, with everybody wants to help everybody. Competitors, you know, now all of a sudden are friends, and you know we're all trying to help each other until we start to move forward. That, that's when I, I that's what I've been seeing for the whole industry this last, you know. 12 months uh, we cre- we helped create an, a, a video called hashtag hospitality ready and we did this back in may 2020 we were we launched it back then 20 uh, may or june and the the industry was totally ready unfortunately everything else wasn't and we're going to start relaunching it again i mean it was a great video just to keep the industry alive and in the forefront now, um, Gene, do you have a last question to ask Jim before we find out where to reach him? Sure, Jim, before uh, we wind up uh, today. And I often say when people say, you know, what do I do to get started in the hospitality industry, how to be successful? And I always tell them, well, you know, search out Jim Conn and make friends. <laughs> um, and I, what advice would you give to somebody starting out in this industry today? What do you think one key bit of advice that somebody needs you know, to get their foot in the door and, and start to move forward to that progress. Uh, I think, you know, getting to know people, listen to the people, and and try to and be focused. Um, my concern is some people who want to get into the industry and they end up um, selling, selling this and selling that and, and doing like three or four different things. An event is one of those things. So you, you almost have to live and breathe it. Um, but you, you know, um, what do we say? Customer service is not a department; it's an attitude, and it's really about 
hospitality because you really just have to treat everyone the same and just listen and learn. I think that's the get involved. That's how I look at everything. And so how can our listeners get involved with you and find you on social media? So our website is eventsmagazine.com. My email is jim at eventsmagazine.com. And uh, we're, we have a pretty good presence on uh, LinkedIn and, uh, you know, that's which is what we do for all business purposes. And um, just try to, you know, a lot of people ask questions and I'll, I'll get back to everybody who asks questions to us, um, you know, just about the industry or about their position or what else, what else we can help them with. And thank you, Jim, for helping us out by expo- by letting us know and learn about you and Gene for introducing Jim to myself and, and Kevin. Yes. Yeah. No, absolutely. If you're interested in the cheesesteak, uh, next Monday evening from 6 o'clock on, starting at Gino's, we're building the world's largest cheesesteak <laughs> to kick off the summer in Philadelphia. We have uh, over 40 cheesesteak royalty coming down to uh, lend their hand in building over a 500-foot cheesesteak. So, wow, yeah, really? Right. Yes. Your cheesesteak, come down next uh, next Monday night and uh, join us. And we will have a live yeah. remote recording from that event. We're excited. Oh, that's awesome. Well, I like cheesesteaks, so going <laughs> up and filling it, you have to, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much, Jim. It was an honor to have you on the show. Yeah, great. Well, thank you for the opportunity, both all three of you. Thank you. Chef Gene, introduce our fabulous guest. Well, being that May is National Egg Month, and in honor of that, I'd like to introduce Vicki Wass, who has over 40 years' experience in the egg industry, starting with the American Egg Board and recently retired from Michael's Foods after 34 years of selling and marketing, well, not marketing, but selling eggs to the public. And probably no person I know knows more about eggs than Vicki. Welcome, Vicki. Thanks, Gene. How are you doing today? I am outstanding, thank you. Happy National Egg Month. Same to you. So let's start off uh, a little bit about who the Amer- actually the American Egg Board is and how you got started with them and you know, your transition into Michael Foods and what you did there. Okay, sure. Um, the American Egg Board is the is the egg marketing the agency um, for uh, to promote the use of eggs across the country nationally. And if I'm sure that most of your listeners remember the incredible edible egg, which which was the jingle that the American Egg Board uh, created way back in the mid '80s. And one of the things, of course, at that time is uh, we had a lot of large states, California, Georgia, Pennsylvania, uh, at the time that were large egg-producing states. And the American Egg Board actually took uh, the funding from a per-egg, per-dozen voluntary reimbursement from all eggs sold in the country in order to market eggs. So at that time, I became, every state had an egg promotion specialist, and I had a degree in nutrition education and dietetics, where I do have one, and um, eggs are the most, uh, the, the, the most perfect food. They have all the essential amino acids, they have vitamins A, B, and K, they're also extremely an economical source of protein for low-income uh, families, as well as 
very likable. So I joined the American Egg Board um, as, as uh, part of the Pennsylvania Department of Agriculture back in the 80s. And in 1987 uh, ish, I, start, I moved into the egg industry from uh, promotion into sales. And uh, with that, I, I had been with uh, several companies, but ended with uh, Michael Foods uh, with 34 years of experience uh, in the food service end of the business in egg products. So um, the American Egg Board also uh, markets shell eggs as well as egg products, and um, egg products are used very widely now, uh, as they as opposed to what they were back in the in the late 80s. So um, I, with Michael Foods and my career, I've sold uh, all kinds of customers, uh, national account customers, key account customers, uh, such as Dunkin' Donuts and and uh, Several, but I also uh, led the um, the non-commercial sales team at Michael Foods uh, that took care of everything beyond restaurants, including military, K-12, higher ed, um, uh, lodging and entertainment, cruise lines, uh, military, um, healthcare, and so I have a broad background in eggs and uh, have actually loved selling them for all those years. Now, um... well. Can Jean had told me that you had also created Agatha? Yes. <laughs> Agatha I apologize. <laughs> Agatha um, was a was a costume character that um, I created um, to uh, gain some recognition uh, with the uh, Pennsylvania promotion uh, job that I had. But to put it in perspective, back then um, I had fourteen thousand dollar budget. And so what we did is in order to get the, the kind of notoriety and recognition for eggs and the egg producers in the state of Pennsylvania, um, I created this costume character. And in fact, that costume character, Agatha, stood outside on, uh, on uh, Market Street in front of McDonald's that, launched, that was launching breakfast back in the early 80s. So um, yeah, Agatha was a was a real claim to fame, and and uh, traveled the state of Pennsylvania to fairs and schools, and uh, and kind of promoted the good things about eggs. So when I got started in the industry many years ago, like you, you know, back then we we had two options: we got whole eggs, or we got big buckets of whole eggs that were used in baking that were just horrendous to smell, but you know, they were good use of eggs. That has changed so much through the course of the years. Tell us a little bit about some of the things you saw in those changes. Well, it's interesting because all industries, um, in order to be successful, have to accommodate the ever-changing needs of the consumer and of the end user operator and food service. And so the egg industry, one of the things is, is exactly how it started. It started with, with in order to accommodate uh, the needs of these large bakeries. Uh, as a matter of fact, in the very beginning, um, they used to crack eggs by hand and put them, um, not blend them, that you would have actually, they would not be pasteurized. They would be raw eggs that were shelled and put into these aluminum tins. Uh, and you're right, Jean, they, you probably had them blended when you saw them, but um, you, know, you would open them up and they'd have a very narrow shelf life. 
Um, that didn't work because the shelf life of those eggs were about a week, maybe maybe five days. So and sure. those would be sold to people like bakeries, large bakeries. Um, enter um, you know the need to have longer shelf life. Those eggs were then blended and then pasteurized, like dairy pasteurization, like you pasteurize milk, very similar. Blended, pasteurized, and then frozen. The unfortunate part is those aluminum tins, they would when you would when you would thaw them, first of all it would take more than a week to thaw them under refrigeration. And if you put them out and, and which was not recommended to put them at room temperature thawing, they would sweat and really not be very very good, a good solution for that baker. Then what happened is the industry said, well, we have to come up with packaging them in a smaller package. So then they went to a five-pound container. Now, it's important to note that there's about 10 eggs per pound, nine to 10 eggs per pound. That's large eggs. And so you're talking about in one of those cans would be about 300 eggs, large eggs. Taking them down to the five-pound container, about 50 eggs, you could thaw them out faster. They weren't sweat. They were in a cor corrugated carton, and they, they were packed six fives to a box. After that, you still had the problem with operators saying, well, these are the ones thought out. I, I wanna use, I'm going to use, use shell eggs, and I'm not going to use egg products because um, you know, I want to I use a fresh product, and I don't want to freeze it. It takes too long. It interrupts my operation. And it's important to note, the reason egg products came on the scene with a need in, to replace shell eggs was because um, of salmonella. And back in the late 80s, there were several salmonella outbreaks of, and because eggs are, a, are have, a, have salmonella in them, um, and I think we can go into another whole show about salmonella and pteridinus in those findings, but egg products stemmed out of, of the importance of having pasteurized eggs for food service. Now let me go back to the to the cartons. So the cartons that, that were frozen, it took time and everything. So then the industry said, well, why don't we do bags and put the eggs, these eggs into five pound bags. And those five pound bags didn't need to be thawed out. They could go right into a stock pot or in a steam jacketed kettle. And they could end 40 minutes later from frozen, you would have hot scrambled eggs in the bag that would hold their heat up to uh, two hours in the bag. And that really addressed some of the need out there for when there were breakfast buffets and such. So this was some of the evolution that took place. Since then, there's also been hard-cooked eggs that are already pre-peeled and ready, ready to go that are in 20-pound pails as well as dry packs, uh, modified atmospheric packaging where they're packed in 812 to a case or 1212 to a case. 12 sets, 12 eggs, 12 packs of 12 eggs to a case. And also, finally, and not last but not least, um, pre-cooked eggs. And those pre-cooked eggs are fried, scrambled, square, round. Uh, then there's omelets with cheese. Uh, there's pre-cooked scrambled eggs uh, with additives. So there's a whole, a whole laundry list of expansion into um, yeah, new we, product. we could get into that for hours and hours and hours, as yes. we're winding down on time. I have one final question for you because this is a big, important yes. thing, and we'll do this in the last minute here. Can you explain the difference in free-range, cage, 
and then the modified cage or larger cage system of raising eggs. Well, I am really not the expert, so to speak, to speak to that, but I can give you a very overarching understanding of very quick. And I'll keep my yokes to a minimum. These are the <laughs> egg monster things. But anyway, um, essentially, um, there's free range. Free range means that the birds are not in cages and they have access to the outside. Um, and some free range are in a, in a building that have access to outdoor. So they can come and go in, in outside and in. The cage free is uh, normally uh, no, not no more of it. No cages in um, in buildings, but no cages. And they have the opportunity to. There's nest boxes. They can uh, dust bathe. They can perch. They can uh, walk around freely. And then there are there there is what we call uh, a modified uh, cages, which are larger than the uh, the. Uh, original cages, um, and I, there's all kinds of changes going on in that, and I'm not, I don't want to go into the measurements and everything right now, but the point is, is that there are, um, there's a lot of cages out there that are larger than they used to be. The industry seems to be going to cage-free. A lot of states have mandated cage-free, like California uh, and Oregon, and there's a, there's several that are on the list uh, to, to change in by 2025. Now, Vicki, with all of the changes that are going on, how can we change up and find you on social media for more information? Mm-hmm. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, right She's, now, retired. She's retired. She's retired. She's retired. But she's clearly a wealth of information. <laughs> I, will, I will give this plug, though. If there's any schools out there, colleges, that need somebody who could talk to their students about how, the food industry works and the marketing of food products and the sales of food products, reach out to our show. We will put you in touch Absolutely. with because I will tell you that what she's taught me and I thought I'd do a lot has been amazing. Absolutely. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Thank you so Vicky, much, Vicky. We will have you back on. We, we loved all, and, and I know having had conversations with you, we could talk for hours about this. <laughs> Yes, we could. Many other things. So anyway, thank you so much. Thank you, Vicky. Thank you, Vicky. Bye. All right, let's get our let's get our tags. Food, farms, and chefs on all social media. PhillyRestaurantReviews.com for past episodes. Amaris Pollock. You can find me on all social media under Amaris Pollock or AR Pollockus. You can find me across social media at Gene Blum or IBFoodie2 where you can email me directly at ibfoodie2 at yahoo.com. I-B-F-O-O-D-I-E, the number two at yahoo.com. Thank you so much, everyone. We will talk to you next week.